dramatically. I don't think there's any medium better. First of all, it did what television doesn't do. It made people listen and pay attention because as we are talking, the great majority of our public may well be wandering about the room or up to something else. <laughs> but well, if it's on a, if radio, they couldn't follow it at all unless they were really following it. That's true, and the imagination really had to take over. That's why a lot of things on television they could never do as well. For example, I don't think on a television show they could do a horror or mystery type of thing no, as well. No, because your own imagination would do it. Because they can't create those special effects that's in the mind all the time when you hear it. By late spring 1937, the Federal Theater Project was under intense scrutiny for staging what some felt were too many left-leaning labor plays. In Washington, there were rumors funds would be cut. At the same time, Wells and John Houseman were rehearsing a production of The Cradle Will Rock. The play took place in Steeltown, USA. It followed the efforts of Larry Foreman to unionize the town's workers. This was to combat the wicked Mr. Mister, who controlled Steeltown's factory, press, church, and social organizations. Less than three weeks before the play was to open on June 23rd, the WPA shut down the project. Wells went to Washington to argue his case. He failed. Next, he threatened to open the play himself. The government's response was severe. A dozen uniformed guards took over the building. They stood at the box office and in the alley outside the dressing rooms to ensure no government property was touched. But John Houseman discovered an out. As U.S. citizens, the actors were free to enter as audience members and then rise from their seats to speak their lines, so long as they weren't on stage. The Cradle Will Rock played in the aisles. The next day, everyone was fired, but it was front-page news. The Mercury Theater on the air, was that the... which started in 38, I guess. Was that the first place you developed what was known, I suppose, as the first person singular, the... Mm -hmm. The idea of telling the stories in the I developed it in a show that I did, mm -hmm. which was my first job as a writer director for radio, which was to do Les Miserables on a series of 13 weeks. And I developed the narration, first person narration thing for that. So long as these problems are not solved, so long as ignorance and poverty remain on earth, these words cannot be useless. That summer, NBC featured a series of Shakespeare dramas with John Barrymore, while CBS aired Shakespeare adaptations featuring Humphrey Bogart and Leslie Howard. To battle for listeners, Mutual scheduled a seven-week take on Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. They hired Orson Welles to write, direct, and star in the production. These words set forth the soul and spirit of one of the world's great literary masterpieces, Les Miserables. Out of the depths of his pity for suffering mankind, Victor Hugo drew a compelling story, one that will live so long as bewildered humanity shall continue to grope toward the light. Tonight, WOR and the Mutual Network bring you the first of seven broadcasts based on this great novel. Each episode will depict some vital development in the epic of Jean Valjean. Orson Welles, author, director, and actor, has assembled a notable cast and offers an interpretation created specifically for radio presentation. 
Mr. Wells will play the role of Jean Valjean. And those sections of the book itself, which in running narrative bind together the dramatic episode, will also be read by him. Les Miserables begin. Part one. The episode which is called The Bishop. Les Miserables debuted on Friday, July 23, 1937 at 10 p.m. over WOR in New York. The production also marked the radio debut of the Mercury Theatre Troupe. Martin Gable was Javert, Alice Frost, Fantine, Virginia Nicholson, the adult Cosette, and it also featured soon-to-be radio mainstays like Ray Collins, Everett Sloan, Betty Gard, Hiram Sherman, Frank Reddick, Richard Widmark, and Wells' good friend Agnes Moorhead. Oh, we're back. Yes. When did you first lay eyes on Master Orson Welles? Well, many, many years ago, I used to spend my holidays with my aunt, who was quite an affluent gal, yeah. and lived at the Waldorf Astoria, the old Waldorf. And one time, there was a little boy with a who came in with a gentleman who wore a Stetson hat and, and had little white trousers on and blazer and so forth, and he was explaining about a concert to two old dowagers. And I, I was just fascinated with this little boy. And I said to my aunt, listen to his vocabulary. Did you ever hear such vocabulary in your life? I was awestruck with this youngster. Well, anyway, during the time that I was there, we went into the drugstore and I was having a chocolate soda and he sat beside me. I said, I hear you went to the concert the other day. And he said, yes, I wanted to hear more about this. And we talked and talked. Well, all right, years pass, everything. I get here to New York and uh, every once in a while, in meeting Orson, and we worked together, of course, in radio, I would think, it seems to me that I've seen you before. Somewhere I've seen you. And then it would pass. Mm -hmm. Well, we were out on the set at uh, Citizen King, and they had just done a story about him in the Saturday Evening Post. And he said, have you seen this? And he tossed the magazine over to me. And I opened it, and there was a picture of the little boy. And I said to him, Orson, did you ever spend your holidays in New York City? And he said, yes. I said, where did you stay? at the Waldorf Astoria. And I said, I told him the story, and he said, well, to think, Aggie, that I knew you when I was seven years old. <laughs> <laughs> so every time you ask Orson, you know, how yeah. long he's known me, he says, well, I've known him since I was seven years old. He used to hang out together when he was <laughs> seven. Right. Well, that's funny. He, he always talks about his life. Sometimes he says that it's as if he lived an adult's life as a child. He told me once off, off camera that he consciously decided to avoid the whole teenage part of his life. He just left that out. He just became an adult well, for the teenage that. years because he did not want to go through teenage well, I can believe that. And to, I mean, to make that decision, be able to bring it off, that's <laughs> no, it's not easy. We have a, a message we'll be right back. An hour before sundown, on the evening of a day in the beginning of October, 1815, a man traveling on foot was seen entering the little town of Dee. Nobody knew him. He looked ragged and mean. He must have come far that day, for he looked weary. The traveler went first to the mayor's office with his passport, and then turned his steps toward the inn. A man who wants food and a bed. One moment, Monsieur. 
Good evening. Is dinner ready? Monsieur, I'm sorry. I cannot receive you. Are you afraid I won't pay you? I have money. I'll pay in advance. I have no room. Well, then, put me in the stable. I'll pay you. I'm sorry. Well, the attic or a corner of the kitchen. I must have lodging. We'll see after dinner. I can't give you dinner. But I'm hungry. I've been walking since sunrise. Twelve leagues. I'm hungry. Get out. What do you mean? You heard me. Get out. But I... I don't understand. Monsieur, I suspected something when I saw you go into the mayor's office. So I sent my boy across to find out. Monsieur, shall I tell you your name? So you know. The traveler looked at the innkeeper, bowed his head, picked up his knapsack and went off down the street. If he had turned, he would have seen the innkeeper in his doorway, pointing him out as he went to the guests of the inn and to the passers-by. Night came on. It had begun to rain. He passed the prison. Mr. Turnkey! Mr. Turnkey! Well, what is it? Mr. Turnkey, your pardon. Will you let me stay here tonight? This is a jail, not a tavern. Get yourself arrested. The traveler did not know the streets. He walked at random. He came to the prefecture and then to the seminary. As he passed the cathedral square, he shook his fist at the church. Then he stopped at a stone bench in the bishop's street and lay down there, hoping for sleep. Who was this man? He was a criminal, and he had paid for his crime. He was an ex-convict. He was tried 19 years before, in 1796. My name is... Jean Valjean. Prisoner, you are accused of burglary. Have you nothing to say? Yes, Excellency. I was hungry. It was not our concern, prisoner. Proven fact of your guilt is not altered by the circumstances of your stomach. <laughs> Excellency, I was very hungry. My name is Jean Valjean, Excellency. I come from Brie. My father and mother are both dead, and my sister's husband is dead, too. So she lives with me at Faverol. She and her little ones. They are hungry, too. Excellency, I'm a pruner at Faverol. And in the pruning season, I earn 18 sous a day. And that's all. It's very hard, Excellency. It's a very hard winter. There's no work, and there's no bread. No bread at all. Just no bread, Excellency. None. And I can't find any work. And they're all hungry, Excellency. More hungry than me, much. The seven little ones. And no bread in the house. Prisoner, you were apprehended by police officers in the possession of stolen property. This court has reviewed the charge. 
And here finds proven finally against the prisoner the crime for which he's on trial. Namely, the burglary of one loaf of bread. Excellency. What does that mean? It means, prisoner, you're a thief. The court finds you guilty. I didn't know I was a thief. John Reljean, you are sentenced to five years in the galleys. The galleys. Five years at the oar of a prison ship. The terms of the code were explicit. Five years in torment. On the 22nd of April, 1797, a great chain was riveted. And Jean Valjean was a part of this chain. He was no longer Jean Valjean. He was 24,601. What had become of the sister? What became of the seven children? Who cared about that? What becomes of the leaves of the young tree when it sawed at the trunk? this time, Jean Valjean talked little, and he never laughed. When he left the galleys, he had not shed a tear for 19 years. 19 long years. For near the end of his fourth year in the prison ship, Jean Valjean escaped. On the evening of the second day, he was retaken. Number 24601, for attempted escape. The prisoner's sentence extended three years. Three years, which made eight. The sixth year. 24,599. Here. 24,600. Here. 24,601. 24,601. Les Miserables captured public interest. In a press release, Wells referred to the broadcast as a projection of what radio could dramatically evolve into. The series had begun solely on the East Coast, but audience reaction induced mutual officials to give it full coast-to-coast coverage. It cemented Wells as someone who could write, produce, direct, and act for radio. <laughs> 